O Lord, our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our uh, text this morning is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And uh, we got 37 through 50. Okay, I'll go 37 through 50. And um, our focus, uh, the title of the message, I should say, is Debt Forgiveness. Verse 37, Luke chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that she was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves Little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So, are you a dog person or a cat person? All right, everybody falls on those. How many, how many of you are dog people? Don't be shy. You can raise your hands. Okay, that's pretty good. Huh? Put them down. How many are cat people? Well, it's pretty even here. It's very good. We have a very well-balanced church in many ways. We have plenty of dog lovers and cat lovers. But we have to all acknowledge that dogs and cats have very different personalities, don't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> dogs are kind and generous and loyal and loving and forgiving. Cats are aloof, subtle, disengaged, and unforgiving. Now, right now, all those cat people are like, you know, sending me irate emails, <laughs> typing away on their phones. But I can prove at least one of my criticisms of cats scientifically, and that is that they are unforgiving. In an article in New York Magazine in 2015, an article entitled The Science of Us, 17 Things We Know About Forgiveness, the author included this observation based on scientific research. The author writes, 
Cats never forgive. Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of research has been on primates, who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas, the only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. Apparently, cats don't really understand the meaning of forgiveness. And my question for you this morning is, do you? Do you understand the meaning of forgiveness, particularly divine forgiveness? This morning, our topic, our focus is on this parable, the parable of the two debtors. And our goal, as it has been throughout this series, is to understand the point of the parable, what it is that Jesus is trying to teach us. Now, normally we've done that through a little pattern, right? We looked at the parable, then we do some pondering, we get to the point. And I want to kind of shed that uh, paradigm, that way of approaching it this morning, because I want to treat this parable in a little bit of a different manner than that. And part of the reason for that is this is a rather straightforward parable. There's not much that's hard to grasp. You don't need a seminary degree to grasp what Jesus is getting at in this parable. It's not cryptic. It's really, this whole text is really combined of two things. There is a story here about Jesus having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. And then within that story, there is a parable. Almost like when you look at a ring, when you have a gem that's put into a ring, right? The, in this text, the ring is the story and the parable is a little gem that's placed in its setting of this story. So I want to think about that story and that parable and what they mean and what they teach us. I want to think about forgiveness and what it means. Now let me just give you a little bit about the story and the parable, just to get our bearings, our context this morning. And let's start with the story. It's very simple. It involves three characters. We have, of course, Jesus being invited to the house of Simon, a Pharisee, for dinner. Simon is the type of guy who considers himself, views himself as being righteous. That would not be unusual. Pharisees were the holy ones. They thought of themselves as being righteous, as keepers of the law, as upstanding members of their community. So Jesus goes there for dinner. So We have those two characters. And then, of course, a third character enters the scene. We're not given this person's name. We're only told her gender. And we're told that she is a sinner. And at the end of the story, how it all ends up is that Jesus proclaims publicly the forgiveness of the sins of that woman, but Simon's status is left open-ended. We don't know where he stands with Jesus or forgiveness. That's the, that's the story in a nutshell. And then the gem of a parable in that ring of the story is this, and it also involves three characters. One is a creditor or a banker, right? Someone who loans money, who's made a, a loan to people and chooses to forgive loans to two particular debtors. 
So we have a kind of a banker and we have two debtors. And the only difference between the two debtors, they're both forgiven, but one is forgiven ten times more than the other. And it doesn't take a genius, as I said, to figure out the connections Jesus is making between the story and the parable. It's rather easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy, right? You can kind of put it together. The banker in the parable is God, is Jesus. The debtor with the 10x debt is the woman. And the other debtor is Simon the Pharisee, at least is how he perceives it. And of course, the debt is a metaphor for our sins. This is a story and a parable about the forgiveness of sins, about the nature of forgiveness and what is really required to experience divine forgiveness. That's what this parable is about. And what I want you to see this morning, the way we'll outline this, I want you to see two things, just two very simple things Two vitally important things. These two things are required, are necessary, are prerequisites to understand, to grasp, and to experience divine forgiveness. So this is of the utmost import. I want you to see two things. Two things that you must understand to experience the forgiveness of God, to know it in its fullness as this woman understood it, stood it in this text. Two things. That's our outline, these two things. The first thing you must understand is that you are in debt to God. That you are in debt to God. That's the first thing we must understand. And the story and the parable bring this out. And this is one of those great things that Jesus loves to do, this device He loves to do. He loves to have this triangular storytelling where he stands as that point on the triangle with two other characters who are there as contrasts, as ways, to, like foils, to be able to use them to make a point with Jesus in the middle. And the point is to look at the contrast, how different they are. And it's in the differences that we find the truth that Jesus is showing us what he wants us to understand. And that's true here in both the story and the parable. It's in the contrast between Simon and this woman that we find the truth of what forgiveness is really about, the true nature of forgiveness. And there are two stark differences between Simon and the woman as the text, as the story, as the parables unfold. And one of them has to do with their spiritual self-awareness. The contrast between their spiritual self-awareness. And what I mean by that is that the woman understood her indebtedness. She understood that she was in debt to God. Or you could say it this way. The woman understood, understood that she was a sinner. And that's the difference between these two figures, right? The woman grasps that she's in debt to God. Simon does not grasp that reality. The woman grasps that she is a sinner. Simon has not come to that spiritual self-awareness. He does not understand that he is in debt to God. And the first thing we must understand to fully experience divine forgiveness is the extent, the nature of our indebtedness to God that we are deeply, deeply in debt to God. Do you understand that about yourself? 
Do you understand the extent, the magnitude, the nature of your indebtedness to God? It's vitally important. It's the first thing we must understand. And it's not just understanding that we sin. It's understanding that we are sinners. That's how the woman is described. It doesn't say she had committed many sins. It describes her as a sinner. And that's who we all are ontologically, by nature, by birth, by the teaching of the Scriptures. We all begin our lives massively saddled with debt. A debt we owe to God because Not that we have sinned or committed sins. Yeah, we do that too, but because we are born sinners. The woman understood it. Simon did not. And the question is, do you? Do you understand it about yourself? You see, people who receive forgiveness in the kingdom of God understand the level of their spiritual indebtedness. They understand what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You need to be poor in spirit. And when Jesus said that, poor in spirit, he wasn't talking about economic poverty. The people to whom he was speaking were basically all in economic poverty. They did not have to be admonished to be poor economically. They had to be admonished to be poor in spirit, to be destitute in a spiritual sense, to come to the recognition that they are massively in debt to God. It's a call to humility. It's a call to grasp a self-awareness about who we are before God, about how our journey begins with God, that we begin spiritually insolvent. Debt forgiveness is for people who know that they are in debt. It's for people who are poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Do you recognize that reality about yourself? Simon didn't grasp that. Simon was not poor in spirit. The woman was. Simon is what you would call middle class in spirit. I get that from Tim Keller. He used that phrase. I think it's a good one to think about because most of us are like that. Good middle class in spirit folks. Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, talks about how we are, this very truth, that we are indebted to God, that we begin indebted to God, that we are spiritually insolvent. Then he brings out this problem that we have is that we don't recognize it. We don't grasp it. And so we are middle class in spirit. We think instead of us owing God, that God owes us. He writes this, Into that book, he says, you believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. That's exactly how Simon viewed himself. Is it how you view yourself? Do you think God owes you something? He's being unfair to you, miserly with you. But when you come before God, do you think how much you owe God? 
The woman grasped it. Simon did not. And our problem is that we are middle class in spirit when we should be poor in spirit. And the reason we are middle class in spirit is because we have a very low view of sin. And part of the problem comes right here in the pulpit. Because the preaching of sin is something kind of viewed as old-fashioned. It's viewed as too negative for a population that is you know, a trigger warning, trauma, victimized population. That to speak such things is an abuse of power to people. It's not an abuse of power, it's the truth. We are sinners. We are deeply in debt to God and we need to capture again afresh and anew the depth and nature of what it means to be sinners. Because it is only as you grasp that reality that you can grasp the contrasting reality of the glorious, the holiness, the beauty, the majesty of the Lord. The more you understand yourself, the more you will understand God. The depth of your knowledge about sin will increase your knowledge of the holiness of God. We need to grasp it again. Do you get what an affront sin is to God? A holy God. Do you understand that? Do you understand that sin is cosmic treason? That is how uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, it's a term he used for sin. It's cosmic treason. And he wrote this about that. He says, what I mean by that statement was that even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us all, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Is that how you think of sin? And because of that reality, because sin is an affront to a holy God, because sin is cosmic treason, we should care about things such as sexual ethics. We should care about things such as racism and misogyny. We should care about things such as the unborn and the poor, the refugee. We should care about the Ten Commandments. We should care about the church, about holiness, about truth, about righteousness, because every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign king. We need to recapture what the Puritans called the sinfulness of sin, to understand it again, to understand the extent of our spiritual insolvency. We need to understand we are sinners. Do you understand that? That just like the woman in our text, you are a sinner. And not an imaginary sinner, a real sinner. Not a hypothetical sinner. A real sinner. Luther, when he was writing to his protege Melanchthon, who was still grappling with the whole penance system of Roman Catholicism, and Luther was trying to set him free, free to see liberty in Christ, he wrote this, Luther did, to Melanchthon. He said, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. 
And then Luther gave that phrase, which has become quite famous, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Or some translations have it, sin boldly, Luther said. Now what did he mean by that, sin boldly? What was he doing? Was he encouraging us to be, hey, go out and have some fun and go, go sin around? You know, was he, was he encouraging that? Was he against sanctification? Be a sinner and sin boldly? It has been often misapplied, misunderstood. But Ryan Reeves, in an article, I think, gets added what he was saying as he was giving this pastoral admonition to Melanchthon. This is what Reeves writes in that article. This is what he was saying. Luther was, in essence, saying to Melanchthon, you're a sinner, man. Get used to it. And the more you get used to it, the more the cross will make sense as a ground of your entire life. Be a sinner. Own it. Own it. Understand that even those who are not struggling with serious sins are still covenant breakers in need of the cross. So the boldness of sin is the boldness that takes us to the cross. It's the boldness to admit we're really, we really do need Jesus. The woman understood it. She grasped that reality about herself. Simon did not. He didn't understand the extent of his indebtedness. He didn't understand that he was a sinner. He understood that she was a sinner. We have that in the text, right? He's thinking to himself at one point, thinking about Jesus, and you have this kind of insight into his mind, and, he, and Simon says you know, to himself, if this man were a prophet, that is Jesus, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He had no idea that he was a sinner. Do you? Beloved, in order to fully experience the forgiveness offered in the kingdom of God, you must understand that you are in debt to God, that you are a sinner. That's the first thing. The most basic, fundamental thing. Understanding who we are before God. That we are massively in debt to God. And the second thing that we need to understand this morning is that you can't pay your debts. The first thing is to understand that you are in debt to God. And the second thing to understand is you can't pay it. You can't pay it back. You can't get out of this spiritual insolvency by your own power. And we kind of see that play out in the story and in the parable through how these two figures, remember that triangulation, how the contrast between how they behave towards Jesus, that they, whether they grasp this truth or not, whether they can pay it back or not. We can see in the differences of how they respond and react towards Jesus. How did Simon respond to Jesus? Simon invites Jesus to his home and he denies him even the most basic level of first century hospitality. No water, no greeting with a kiss, nothing. He has no regard for Jesus. He doesn't need Jesus. He can pay his own debts. Then contrast that with the woman and her expression, her actions, her extravagant expressions of love and gratitude to Jesus. She courageously enters, purposely and courageously enters that hostile environment. She could have done this in a different place, in a private place. She chose to walk into the house of a Pharisee 
in the middle of a dinner party with dignitaries and important people and walk right into the middle of it. And she kneels before the Lord, reclining at the table, and she weeps. And she cleans his feet, kisses his feet, wipes them with her hair, anoints them with oil. She did it in front of everyone. Why? Because she had been forgiven. She understood the truth that Jesus had paid it all, that He had paid for her sins, that He had forgiven her, and the response is forgiveness. She knew it. Do you know it? Have you grasped what Jesus has done for you in the cross? How He has forgiven your sins? You'll know by how you respond to Him. Whether your response is that of Simon or that of the woman, is your response love and gratitude to God? There's a debate about this text, about the order and sequence of events, about whether this woman's actions in this account, all that stuff that she does, whether she did that and then Jesus forgave her because of that, or whether she came into this room forgiven and she does that as an expression of gratitude that's flowing out of that. And I am in the latter category. And I think Jesus makes that clear when He says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins which were many, were past tense, have been Past tense, forgiven. Hence, therefore, she has shown great love. Why is she showing great love? Because her sins had been forgiven. And then Jesus declares it again publicly in front of everybody. Just so they know, like the assurance of pardon in our service, your sins are forgiven. But sometime before this event, these two people met, Jesus and this woman, and she had experienced forgiveness. And this is her coming back to Jesus with love and gratitude in a public, extravagant, and glorious way. Why? Because she understands that her sins have been forgiven by Jesus, that she had a debt she could not pay, and Jesus paid it for her. Do you recognize that Jesus has done that for you? That He loves you so much that He took on your debt. And He didn't strike a deal with you. I'll tell you what, I'll pay some of it. You do this. No. Jesus loves you so much. He said, I'll pay it all. It's gone. The woman understood that. And love and gratitude welled up in her. Welled up to the point of tears. To the expression of something that was borderline publicly scandalous. Not borderline. It was publicly scandalous. But she didn't care. Because she understood that Jesus paid it all, that He paid what she could not pay herself. And my question for you is, have you recognized that truth in your life? Do you understand that Jesus paid it all, that you can't even pay a penny of it? That's part of our problem, is that we think we can contribute to our salvation, that we are able to give to that work. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. It's law, not gospel. When you are paying for your sins, when you are trying to pay that debt, it's law, it's not gospel. 
It's the craziest thing. In their book, Law and Gospel, William McDavid, Ethan Richardson, and Paul Zoll provide this illustration of how kind of crazy this thinking is about our salvation and thinking that we contribute to it. And the illustration they give is of somebody who's on like a cruise ship. And they fall overboard, right, on the cruise ship. And they, they can't swim. So there they are in the ocean, right? They're out there. They can't, they can't swim at all. They're beginning to drown. They're panicking, and so someone throws the life preserver over the side to them. It lands directly in front of them, perfect shot, and they grab hold of that life preserver and hold it for dear life. And then they're pulled onto the deck, you know, by these people, and they're there on the deck, and you know, you're coughing up the water like every movie has, and there you are, you're coughing out water from your lungs. And the people are gathering around and they're so happy that you're safe and you're kind of half unconscious and you come out of consciousness, you're know, unconsciousness, and you open your mouth and you say this, did you see the way I grabbed onto that life preserver? How tightly I held onto it? Did you notice the definition of my biceps and the dexterity of my wrists? I was all over that thing. It's ridiculous, Right? But that's sometimes how we think about the gospel, about how we think about our relationship with God. Look what I did, God. Look at how I grabbed hold of your salvation that you offered to me. That's Simon thinking. That's Simon thinking. Woman, the woman here understood it. That it was all Jesus, that he paid it all. If you want to understand the nature and meaning of forgiveness, the gospel, if you want to understand salvation, you have to understand your inability to pay your debt back to God. And you look to your heart to understand if you grasp that. Is your heart filled with love and gratitude? Are you responding to Christ like this woman? Do you understand that Jesus paid it all? If you do, you respond with love and gratitude to Christ. Look at your heart. Are you like Simon? Are you like the woman? Do you understand that Jesus paid it all? You see, beloved, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to seeking forgiveness from Christ, you must come with nothing in your hands. Nothing. We come empty-handed to Jesus. And it's vital that we do. There's an old uh, Italian uh, story. Uh, it's obviously apocryphal, fictional. It's a story about the shepherds gathered around Jesus, you know, the baby Jesus and the kind of the manger setting. And the story has the shepherds trying to outdo one another. They each kind of bring special gifts for Jesus. And they've got the, these wonderful things. They want to really show Jesus how much they love him, how much they think of him. And there's one shepherd among them, this little poor shepherd who's got nothing to bring at all. And he actually feels ashamed about that, that he has nothing to bring in this moment. Everyone else has it. He's the only one with empty hands. And Mary's there with the child, with the Christ child. And people are trying to give her these gifts. And she has to do something with the child to receive the gifts. And she looks around. 
And she sees the poor shepherd boy with nothing in his hands, and she gives him the baby Jesus. It's those who come with empty hands who receive Christ. It's those who recognize that they are in debt to God, that they can't pay that debt. They are given Christ. That's what you need to know. And then once you know that, beloved, and once you have experienced that, once you have grasped divine forgiveness, what do you do? You do what this woman did. You come back to Jesus with your hands full. With your heart full. Full of love and gratitude. Wanting to give your life to Him in extravagant devotion to Him. In thanksgiving to Him. You come to Him empty-handed, but you don't leave that way. You leave forgiven. You live, leave full of gratitude and love to God because you understand that Jesus paid it all, that there has been complete debt forgiveness in Christ. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Listen to this. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it away. And what did He do to it? Nailing it to the cross. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Jesus paid it all. He nailed it to the cross. It is done. It is finished. It is forgiven in Him. That's the gospel. That's the nature of forgiveness. So sinner, come. Come with your debts, your insolvency, your poor spirit. Come with your empty hands. Come with the knowledge of who you are, that you are a sinner, and receive from Christ. Full, complete, utter, and joyous forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. As the old hymn put it, Jesus paid it all. Praise be to God for that good news. Let us pray to Him. Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning in the good news of Your gospel. Oh, God, help us to grasp not only the depth of our debt, but the magnitude of what You have paid for us. And let us be filled not with sadness, not with a sense of shame, but let us be filled with joy that You are the type of God who loves Your people so much that You would pay it all. All of it. We find our comfort, our hope, and our joy in that truth. And may we live in gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, amen.